The title of this evening's talk is Spiritual Urgency. What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat like this one? So beginning this evening uh, with a few questions, some of which have uh, probably visited your mind and heart at times. These questions that humans have felt and asked forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history, these murmurings of the heart, the deep questions and deep yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is death? Its significance, its meaning. Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to really be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how? How can I live gracefully, peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and difficulties in this constantly changing world? with all of the challenges within me and around me. What is it that brings me to practice? And again, why am I here in this retreat? Our practice isn't about getting caught up in mulling or stewing over these questions. That's not the point. But rather these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and as an inspiration towards connecting and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So as I've already mentioned, this evening's talk is about spiritual urgency, or an urgency to awaken. And the Pali term for this is samvega, which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But I found that actually it's a term that's quite difficult to render into English because it includes such a an array uh, of different states of mind. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to an urgency to practice. And the classical text goes on to say that samvega is also about being one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one and then followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So samvega is the urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. And it's important to note that it's an energy that's not at all fraught with a tense or frantic or obsessive kind of quality. But rather it's a quality of mind and heart that often, very often in fact, comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws of the way of things. Some degree of understanding 
how it is. And so I'd like to look at this for a few moments. For some of you, Samvega may have been sensed or maybe first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round of daily life. Others of you may have felt a certain urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, in sensing, seeing, and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and disappearing, arising and disappearing in its gross and maybe also in some of its subtler forms. And the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. The death of someone close to us in our life can certainly move the heart towards the urgency to practice, towards the urgency to awaken. And for some of you, this sense of urgency might be experienced through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges of life. The suffering in life from this particular perspective in general or maybe more specifically through these experiences within your own life. For some, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long-accustomed or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or directly experiencing bias or judgment and prejudice in relationship to race or culture or economic circumstances, or gender, or age, or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain, you may also have experienced a vague or maybe not so vague sense that it really doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way. And an urge to move towards this potential other way. When Samvega first stirs us, it can be an emotional state that's maybe somewhat difficult or disturbing until it finds a very clear and healthy direction to connect to. One of the wonderful attributes of this stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. I think that it's important to recognize and to acknowledge that continuing all along the way of our practice, for each one of us sitting here in this room, right now, Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process with the various, right now, with the various physical occurrences of aging being really a primary inspiration at this point. 
and also by the phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I might be very directly involved with in some way or happenings that I'm just simply an observer of such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in this world and the often very violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this. Samvega is really the movement of the heart, an inner response, both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of our formal meditation times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart to let go deeper and deeper into my practice. It's this flavor of Samvega that stirs and moves me again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful, <clears throat> painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it may sometimes be uh, experienced as an ardency, as an inspired heart-mind, a passion for spiritual practice. Something that I'm sure at least some of you have felt at times, and maybe at least in part what may have brought you here to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity and in with your practice, it actually moves and inspires me. And I think it's safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. This is really one of the wonderful aspects of all of us here together right now. One of the wonderful aspects of living in a practice community such as this, even if just for a short while, we move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So even more specifically, from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing. And what, along the way of our practice, keeps urging us, moving us, towards sustaining and deepening our practice? There's a a beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the Four Heavenly Messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city. After all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth. A person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical. Considering that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth-seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in, that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, have always been and will all forever be undeniable aspects of life for all 
living beings. So considering the possibility that the great and very ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred for him before to such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches, ease, and comfort of his existence, to search for the truth, to search for the true nature of life. He was profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life he witnessed as he took in these four very common events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the very familiar habits of his life. And isn't it really the same with us, all of us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, we've reacted reacted by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. We've reacted by what we do to the various manifestations of our aging body. We've reacted by even pretending or believing that something else is happening until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that instead of reacting, we respond. And we respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with maybe sadness or anguish or fear or feeling tightly contracted with the feelings of attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. Really, our closest surroundings are full of stirring things. Stirring in the sense of samvega. And if we don't generally perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that render our vision dull and our hearts insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen happen to us in relationship to the Buddhist teachings. We certainly may have and probably have encountered times of powerful intellectual, emotional, and spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness and its compelling force. As maybe some of you have experienced along the years of your practice. So, what's the remedy? The remedy for this is 
to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us. Which if we look carefully, constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is. Which, simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round and round and the constantly changing nature of daily life. And if we continue to look carefully into the fullness of life within us and around us, we begin to sense and see the cause, the origin of this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, which is the second truth, the second noble truth, which again, put simply, essentially is a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third truth, the third noble truth. The truth that in fact there is a potential end to this suffering. There is a solution to this predicament. The solution being to not cling, but rather to see things utterly clearly and simply be with them as they are. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path, the path of practice offered by the Buddha. That in fact, each of you are engaged in walking along at your own pace right here, right now in this very life and in this retreat. And as any of you may have experienced, sometimes quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. For instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, yearning, or clinging, and the self-identification that's embedded in each of these habitual reactive habit patterns. Or insight, wisdom, might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long-accustomed sight of maybe some manifestation of poverty, maybe a weeping child, or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with. Or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one. Or one's own illness or bodily discomfort. Or of course, myriad other flavors of experience. With any of these experiences having the power to startle us, meaning the power to promote a reflective response and to stir a sense of urgency in our resolve to really sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experiences of body and mind directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, 
ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that is, of course, very available for each of us all the time. For instance, a moment or successive moments of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of bodily sensations or mental states or a moment knowing that it's all impersonal. It's all anatta, not self. Mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. With these moments of sensing, seeing, and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path. Go deeper towards the end of suffering. Or, depending on circumstances, to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia. Each one of us have many, many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. (coughs) And of course, many stories within our life as a whole. Stories that in fact often exhibit (coughs) this knowing in the manifestation of Samvega. And it's often part of what I hear from students during practice interviews. There are a number of really wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas, telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency, the stirring being done by the Buddha himself, or the stirring being done by one of the Arhants, the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas. Devas are beings whose uh, practice has brought them to be dwelling uh, for lengths of time, and sometimes long lengths of time, in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, who aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a section... of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks, who are practicing in those woodland thickets. So I'd like to share just a few of these encounters. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket, And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for his day of practice. But all the while he kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the the deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, for food, lust for various objects, for various experiences. And the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent 
be mindful. Let us remind you of the way of the good. Hard to cross, indeed, is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual lust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust, so a yogi or a bhikkhu, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred by that that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next uh, dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's parinibbana, after his death, and his close attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain full enlightenment, to become an arhant before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. Ananda had gone to the Kosala country and entered the forest abode to, his forest abode to meditate. But when the people in the area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them about the law of impermanence. The forest-dwelling deva there, aware that the upcoming Buddhist council could succeed only if Ananda uh, Ananda attended it as an arahant, came to to provoke and to inspire him to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because uh, Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name uh, of Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. Well, I picked this particular dialogue because though, of course, none of us are in the same position as Ananda was, we're certainly often quite caught up, quite seduced by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and internally, and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead really go for these things. To me, this little verse really beautifully and clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Of course, not to neglect what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. And so another verse. <clears throat> On one occasion a certain bhikkhu was dwelling in Visali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion an all-night party was being held in Visali. This was a bhikkhuni, by the way. Then that bhikkhuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Visali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? 
That little cartoon down on the bulletin board says the same thing. (laughs) Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse. As you dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log, rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller, subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realm. Then that bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continually, was continually thinking thoughts of ill will and harming, as well as potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva, who also inhabited that same woodland, out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in him, spoke these verses to that bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning having relinquished, having let go of attending to things as permanent, as self, as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, meaning attending to their true nature, their true characteristics with a careful attention. Yani Somani Sikara and Pali attending to things as impermanent, as not-self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. You should reflect carefully, said the deva. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, and in this case the Buddha, meaning the Buddha, on the Dhamma, and on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. Then when you're suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse that I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from his alms rounds and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would go down into a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, well, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion, and wishing to stir up an urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds to the deva. I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalk, 
one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds to the deva, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds to this, which surprised me when I first read it. We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, Bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that Bhikkhu, stirred up by that Deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and now, it seems that in fact things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses the time and it crosses cultures. The teachings are really timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy. And the word for this is virya in Pali. And courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith, sada, and the development and blossoming of confidence, pasada. Each of these qualities, each one of them, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are essential in helping us to break through what for some of you might be some degree of a sense of timidity or hesitation, maybe some fear, doubt, or maybe some degree of complacency for some of you. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse Samvega. In speaking to a group of disciples in one sutta, he says, Rouse yourself. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping? Meaning uh, the sleep of ignorance and delusion. What good is there in sleeping? For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by disease, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourself, sit up, said the Buddha. Resolutely train yourself to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which most humans and devas are attached and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, consigned to the realms of confusion and anguish. And the Buddha goes on to say, 
negligence is a taint. And so is the greater negligence growing from it by earnestness and understanding. Withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice that's often used is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution he found to the predicament of this unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves during this process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth, which, from this perspective, we could say is a gift that confirm some of our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there somewhere, not coming from some outside experience or some outside being but it's coming from in here in here in the craving and the clinging and fear that's present in our own mind and heart and then the Buddha in his great confidence coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering. That there's a very available available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, noble qualities of heart, moral, ethical responsibility, sila, Concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, faith, confidence. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency. That at one point led us to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a practical solution. One of the things that first drew me to Buddhism, the practicalness of it. Our predicament has a practical solution. A solution that's actually within the power of every human being. A solution that many of you right here, probably all of you right here, have begun to have a growing faith in. Possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories, the many teachings, within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses, 
but really most importantly, that you've come to know out of your own direct experience through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows and develops and deepens, for many of us, it in a sense is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe somewhat of an unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. A story that, in fact, I have found to be really inspiring and that invoked uh, a quite a spiritual <coughs> urgency in me the first time that I read it, many years ago now. And it continues, actually, to move me every time I read it. So I'd like to share a few excerpts with you from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. A great title for a book. I've been reading about weasels because I saw one last week. I startled a weasel who startled me, and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into silence as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked and someone threw away the key. Our look was if two, as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain, or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs, it filled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing. And the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleadings. But he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular. I might learn, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasel's, open to time and death 
painlessly. Noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even, till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasels, open to time and death, painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In the light of Samvega, it feels uh, actually appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death, words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of Samvega in them, to exhort them to really keep going on the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version uh, of these words that comes from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I found to be quite inspiring. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. If I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance 
and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in closing this evening's talk, we come right back around to our opening question. As Mary Oliver, in her own way, poses them in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who's eating sugar out of my hand. Who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who's gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Let's sit together silently for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. At the end of Dhamma Talks, we'll be chanting, as we will this evening, the sharing of blessings, which is on the other side of the metta chant. those of you that know this, chant wholeheartedly to support those who are learning it. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue 
my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.